from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. How's everybody doing? Uh, we're on the, how's everybody feeling since we're on the home stretch now, uh, winding up this very... Yes. It's been a very empowering, very uh, knowledgeable conference. Uh, just a quick introduction. My name is Justin Ponko. I'm a recent alumni of UNLV, the Departments of Political Science and History. I have worked with a lot of activists through the Women's Studies Department, through the Women's Center, and I am delighted to introduce our uh, presenter uh, of the film you're going to see, um, Ellie uh, Ungar-Sargon. Uh, grew up in, or- in an Orthodox Jewish household in Brookline, Massachusetts. Uh, when he was 13, uh, he and his family moved to Israel, where he lived until he was 19. Uh, he enrolled in the medical school in a medical school in the United Kingdom. But three years into his MD program, uh, he decided to follow his passion and abandon medicine uh, to follow uh, filmmaking. Uh, since then, he's earned two degrees from the School of Art, uh, the Art Institute of Chicago. And uh, I, for one, welcome this unique opportunity to see how a cultural upbringing, a medical knowledge background, as well as a passion for filmmaking converge as he presents Cut, his first feature-length film. So please join me in welcoming Ellie. Thank you so much. Uh, A few words of thanks are in order before we get started here. I don't know where Travis got to, but... um, we, I really, we all owe Travis uh, a debt of gratitude for putting this amazing event together. Uh, I want to thank him for hosting us here and having, this is our 30th screening on the Cut Tour. Uh, I've been touring uh, the North American continent for the last two months. And um, so this is, this is the ultimate, this is the final uh, screening of the 2011 Cut Tour. So I'm very happy to be here. Um, my name is Ellie Unger-Sargon. I'm the filmmaker um, and I come at this, uh, as my introduction may have suggested to you, from a slightly different perspective. I grew up as an Orthodox Jew. Uh, I did go to medical school, um, which is what Jewish mothers like. <laughs> and I dropped out of medical school, which is what Jewish mothers don't like. Um, so I have some uh, medical knowledge and background, and I have this very unique background of coming from the insular world of um, Orthodox Judaism. Uh, as I mentioned in an earlier question and answer session, I don't. Th- I, I know that there's a, a sort of sense in our our society that, um, well, you know, the the Jews and the Muslims they they do it for for their reasons, and that's a separate subject from the larger discussion about uh, infant male circumcision in the United States. Um, one of the things that I've been exploring over the last two months uh, in talking to people about this, and by the way, this is part of a podcast series that we've been doing concurrent with the tour. All of the question and answer sessions and some special interview sessions and even some debates are in that podcast. We're about uh, up to 40 episodes now. Um, but one of the things that I, I've started to realize is that what we all assume are two separate subjects, Jewish circumcision and American circumcision, I, I'm sort of being hit in the face over and over and over again by just how similar they are. I'll just give you one simple uh, concrete example so that we're not talking entirely in the abstract here. Um, uh, when I think about the issue of shame 
and, and this is one of the, the arguments that you often hear brought up by people who are uninformed about this subject, that if I don't circumcise my son, that they will experience a great deal of shame. Um, well, you know, it's a patently sort of irrational argument, but it has a lot of emotional salience. And the same thing exists on the Jewish side of the spectrum. Um, they, they frame it differently, of course, and if you come from an Orthodox background, as I do, they'll frame it in the sense that, um, you know, he'll be the only one who's not circumcised, and he's part of this spiritual, you know, insular community, and and that that sort of, uh, you know, that that causes shame. But if if you if you actually go down to the root of the argument, it's really the same thing, um, and in both cases it's blown out of all proportion, right? In the American case, I've been traveling around the country now talking to people who have left their sons intact, and I've realized and noticed, um, I, you know, I always ask them, well, you know, how do you deal with the shame issue, and what do you tell your children to buttress them against the shame that they experience in the locker room, and everyone sort of looks at me like I'm nuts. Like, well, it's just a non-issue. Um, and I've, on the Jewish side, been arguing more and more over the last couple of months that the supposed religious consequences, ritual consequences, of not circumcising a Jewish boy, orthodox or not, are entirely imagined. Um, this may sound crazy, um, and it certainly sounds crazy to even educated Jews, but I've done some research into this subject, and I was gifted with a very strong religious education, so I have the tools to do some of this research myself. And I found that actually the, the practical, ritual, religious consequences of leaving a Jewish boy intact are largely imagined. This just to say that um, we think that these are separate issues. We think that, you know, oh, well, you know, the Jews have a good reason for doing this, and, you know, the rest of us are just chumps or something like that. I, I, I'm blurring, I, I'm more and more as I, I talk about this, I, I, f I feel it's important to blur that line because I don't think it, it really exists. I think that at the, at the core of our essence of who we are, we're all human beings. And some of these similarities that I'm pointing out in the ways in which people imagine, they have these imagined sort of consequences and irrational sorts of emotional responses, they're very much similar. They're very similar. And I've, uh, as I've been meeting, and this is rare, but I hope it'll become more common as I'm meeting um, Muslims who are sensitive to this practice, I'm getting similar uh, sort of reports from them about the way people deal with it. And of course, this is because we are all human beings, and we all we we do all react to um, something like this in similar ways. So that's that's it for me for now. Uh, I look forward to talking with you in the question and answer session. So thanks so much. Uh, questions or comments? You know, because we've chatted about this, that I'm dying to to tell you my uh, my thoughts on the staircase, as they're as they're called. I mean, the last time I showed this production, I admitted to you that I walked on it twice already, and this is my fourth viewing. But I want to mention something quickly about Dr. Marks and that procedure that may not be obvious to first-time viewers of this film. For one thing, she's an OB; she's not trained in male surgery. She's not trained in microsurgery on a small structure, I'm betting. Um, she probably got 15 minutes instruction maybe on the innervation of the male organs in medical school, if she got that. 15 minutes seems to be the typical amount I hear about. 
She did not measure the amount of tissue she was going to take off, even though most medical books require that. She did not transluminate the glands from behind to make sure that she hadn't trapped anything in the clamp. The procedure used a clamp that, that provides hemostasis, that is no bleeding, which means this can't have been a true bris because it doesn't meet the orthodox definition of a bris, which requires bleeding and does not allow the use of that particular clamp. Right. So the other thing is she doesn't know whether the boy is a shower or a grower. She doesn't know whether he'll need that tissue eventually. She doesn't know whether he was born to a family that has fairly low level of sexual innervation and that he might need everything he has. She doesn't know what quantum of, of sexual sensation she has taken away from that boy. It may be that he'll be just fine. But, she, but the important point is she does not know that. And these are the things that aren't obvious when you first see that procedure. It looks fairly quick and fairly benign and uh, I, mean, I mean, to those of us who know about this, it's fairly awful, but it's interesting that it goes quickly, and yet there are an awful lot of issues that aren't being addressed there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, in fairness, she does measure in the sense that she takes her hemostat and she does sort of crush a certain amount of tissue, and I think that's her way of measuring. Um, but, of course, what you're saying is true. Um, you're, you're always rolling the dice with circumcision. And th there are two things that have come to my attention I think are really important um, to this. Number one, um, there's a certain percentage of the male population that are going to have a sharper fall-off of neurological functioning than the rest of the population. That's just natural. In any given biological population, some percentage are going to have a sharper fall-off of um, neurological function. And in my experience, a lot of the guys who restore, uh, most of the guys who restore that I've spoken to, got to a certain age where they literally could not feel anything through their penises anymore. So you're rolling the dice on that. The other thing that's come to my attention that you're rolling the dice on that I think is really interesting was addressed in a previous Q&A, um, which is that in the female population, and uh, here we're just talking on the heterosexual side of things, but in the female population, you also have a distribution and some women lubricate more and some women lubricate less. And so you're also rolling the dice on the fact if, if the person indeed grows up to be heterosexual, that their female partner, um, you know, they, they might be on the sort of lubricates less side of this, of this, of the distribution. And that's also, that, that can also create problems. Um, these are just two examples, but yeah, when you're doing this to routinely and to, to all boys, um, yeah, it's always a roll of the dice for those reasons. Um, putting aside all of the other issues that we talked about, which is that everyone loses the ridged band, everyone loses the mobility of the penis, um, and all of the sexual functions, all of the, the, comp the possible complications. Um, there are so many issues that, that come up, yeah. She also doesn't realize it was, it was her fault. You know, that's, that's the point that I was thinking about, is that she was trying to alleviate herself of the guilt by saying, it's not my fault, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So she's pushing the guilt onto somebody else, not her. I, I've, I, uh, speaking about God, I, I, I meant to make another point on the orthodox thing. Uh, Dr. Marx is not orthodox. She grew up orthodox, um, but she's a reformed Jew, and she trained in the reforms Brit Milah program. And in the reform Brit Milah program, the uh, requirement to draw blood is not, is, it's not there. Um, so that... This still meets the definition of the halakha as far as Reformed Jews are concerned? Yes, that's correct. So, so it's not a failed bris then? According to the Reform, according to the Orthodox, it would be a failed bris on the, the grounds that you, that you brought up, which is that it, it, the, the form of hemostasis, the clamp, 
doesn't draw blood. So yeah, according to the Orthodox definition, it would not meet the halachic requirements for bris. And the Hebrew and the Hebrew prayer and the story of Sephora are all missing then too. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, she did, I mean, in fairness, the liturgy is more or less a direct translation of what you heard in the Orthodox bris earlier. Um, she didn't mention, this is interesting, you know the biblical character Phineas, Pinchas in Hebrew? That's brought up in... Um, that, that's brought up in Orthodox liturgies of circumcision. The reason given, the story of Phineas, just briefly for those of you who aren't familiar with it, he was a religious zealot uh, who uh, lived, uh, you know, at a, whatever, it's a biblical story. But, he, but, um, but he, uh, he, you know, he was uh, around at a time when the Jews were reportedly, you know, getting into these sort of religious uh, sexual orgies with the Midianite people. And um, this made God very upset. Um, God gets very upset a lot in the Bible. He's kind of, he's, he's, he's a little fickle. Um, so God was very upset about this. And this guy, Phineas, um, he, uh, th- there was a very high up prince who was engaged in a sort of public sexual relationship with a Midianite priestess. And um, they were... Uh, in flagrante delecto, as they say, and uh, he came in with a spear, and he speared them both in the act uh, and brought their bodies out to the, for everyone to see. Uh, so this story is invoked in Orthodox uh, brises and in, in circumcisions, and the reason, the putative reason given is that uh, it's supposed to remind men. There's like an object lesson here about how to use your penis and how not to use your penis. I know personal note, I'm going to ask you a question. Can you or have you forgot, forgiven your father? Have I forgiven my father? Yeah. I, I, you know, I, look, different guys react differently to the um, information that at a certain time when they had absolutely no ability to do anything about it, people cut off a part of their penis. For whatever reason, I never, I was never really angry about it. And I wasn't angry at my parents for doing it. Um, I understood that there were, there, this is a deeply embedded cultural practice. It's a form of social violence. I, I, I think it's different than um, a sort of a typical assault. You, I mean, you might sort of draw an analogy here and say, well, this is just like, you know, assaulting another human being. So obviously it's illegal and it's wrong. And, but I, I think that there are different dynamics at play here. Um, we had some uh, more heated discussions than the ones you saw in the film, uh, for sure. Um, <laughs> they will never be seen. Um, but I, the moment that you do see in the film at the end where he, he makes that statement about what's important to him, um, to me was like him saying, I'm sorry. And it was really, I mean, it was cinematically powerful for me because um, he's talking about it and framing it in terms of pain um, and autonomy. And I, I just thought that that was so, it was such an interesting reversal. Um, but he's been wonderful about the film. He was wonderful to participate in it. He's been wonderful ever since in helping me to promote it and talk about it and engage um, and he's come a, quite a long way since I made the film. 
um, in Chicago, he, he, you know, I mentioned that I was on this tour, so I blew through Chicago, which is where my father lives. And uh, he came to one of the screenings we had and um, just shocked everyone there uh, coming out in favor of the San Francisco ballot initiative. Uh, when someone in the audience reminded him that it was uh, that there were no religious exemptions in that initiative, uh, in the proposal, um, he thought about it for a second and he said, well, you know, um, more than a million babies were circumcised last year in this country and that's a real problem. And so if, you know, the Jews of San Francisco have to leave the city limits to, to do this. That's a price that he thought was worth paying for San Francisco taking the lead on this issue. Uh, I was standing next to him when he said this, and I was quite surprised. But, I mean, the salient factor of that to me is that he now accepts that this is an ethical problem, which in the film, as you saw, he wasn't really very receptive to that argument. He thought that the sociological... Uh, shame implications outweighed whatever I thought were ethical problems with the practice. I thought he's a, a courageous man, and he gives me hope. I was struck by the one Orthodox rabbi, and uh, I'm, I'm Jewish myself, though I never spent any time in the Orthodoxy, but he condemned circumcision outside of the faith but yet it seemed like he was trying to say that he could justify it within the faith and I've never heard anything like that before I wonder if that's a common argument that the orthodox community makes and perhaps uses as a means to justify other forms of abuse and repression at least as I would see it. Yeah, it's not as common as you'd think it would be, um, partly because we're living in the United States. Um, so, you know, no further defense of circumcision is, is required because everyone here does it. Um, but you do hear it from time to time. And I, I try to make a distinction between um, fundamentalist religious people and non-fundamentalist religious people. Um, I think that's an important distinction to make. The denominational distinctions don't really matter to me so much. I think they're kind of passe anyway. Most people don't really define themselves along those lines anymore. But I do think there's a really important distinction to be made between someone who says, this is the word of God, literally, this is the word of God, and we obey the word of God, and there's no discussion, and someone who says that the human enterprise and human ethics plays a role in the development uh, and perpetuation of religious traditions. I think that's a really important distinction. The, the, those two positions are antithetical. Um, what I think is really interesting is that um, I don't think most Jews are comfortable with what Rabbi Warsh says in the film. I mean, obviously, you know, there's a cinematic value to having someone coming out and saying, I'm an abuser. But, um, but, but like scratching beneath the sort of dramatic surface of that, um, I don't think that most Orthodox Jews would be comfortable with a fundamentalist position. I, I, I'm saying most Orthodox Jews even. Um, you'll find most of, the, most of the Jews who are comfortable with that position are Orthodox, but I don't think that most Orthodox Jews are, are comfortable with the notion that God tells us to do something, we do it, end of story, that's it. And part of that comes from the really rich Jewish tradition of 
arguing with God, right? And the notion that, and I mean, there's so many examples of this. I bring up the example of Abraham because it's particularly dramatic that Abraham argues with God over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Um, but I mean, there, there are hundreds of examples um, that are in the Bible, in the Mishnah, in the Talmud, um, of people arguing with God, of uh, human agency being really an important part of this story. Um, and the sort of recent orthodoxy that, you know, in, in, in frankness, came as a response to the reform movement, right? It's kind of a recent phenomena, this sort of fundamentalism, um, uh, mid-19th century, right? Where you have these people making radical changes to the tradition, you know, all of a sudden there were organs showing up in synagogues that were being played on the Sabbath, and they were changing the architecture, and women were being allowed to do things were you know given permission to participate and all these things were happening so you had like a sort of reactionary element that said you know no and then that's when that recasting of the this sort of fundamentalist view came in it's a very recent development um so yeah i mean i, I and I, I i look again we're in in the united states so for the most part it, this is not something that people feel the need to talk about much that's changing, and I'm trying to challenge people to, to talk about this in a more sophisticated way. Um, but, uh, you know, so far, um, I, I don't think uh, anyone's feeling particularly threatened by me in this country. Um, it seemed like to me the couple, um, they're, they're the same as any couple that most, kind of the average couple, whether they're Jewish or Christian, that often does circumcision, that their excuse is just, well, this is just for us. And the Jewish thing was just a little extra thing because they didn't really care about the technical aspects of following it religiously, of doing it. Um, and it, it's just, that's just so puzzling to me. I, I just, I just don't get it. <laughs> which, which part is puzzling? What's the, what's the, the, the most part puzzling that it's, part? This is just for us and they are closed down to any information, and they're just doing it because. Well, it, sh it, it shouldn't be any more surprising than any American making this decision. Well, that's what I'm saying. They were no different than any, anybody else right. making the decision. And that's kind of my point about this whole thing, right? Um, I, I think a really interesting data point that I recently learned is that in Sweden, um, where circumcision is not a normative practice, the rates among Jews, the most reliable recent figure that we have, which may be a little out of date, but nonetheless is striking, is that 40% of Jews in Sweden circumcise their boys. Now, I mean, that's quite striking, um, if you think about it for a second, that in a non-circumcising culture, the majority of Jews don't circumcise their boys. Well, in a circumcising culture, a majority of Jews do circumcise their boys, but the corollary to all this is when the United States gets to the point of being a non-circumcising culture or non-majority circumcising culture, and we're getting pretty close to that, um, I think most American Jews are also going to stop circumcising their kids for the same reason that other Americans and, and Swedish Jews right. aren't circumcising now, their I have, boys. I have one more question. I'm not quite sure if you can answer or not. I'm hoping you can since it seems like you researched it as far as Jewish tradition. Mm -hmm. I have heard or read somewhere that traditionally 
circumcision was much less invasive. Is that true? Yeah, it's it's true. It's it's overblown, um, in my experience, by uh, certain intactivists for rhetorical purposes, right? The 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 notion that um, well, you know, maybe or, or there are other people also who overblow it. Some people want to sort of go back to that as a compromise solution to the conflict inherent in circumcision. It is true that until the Hellenic period, which is you know about two thousand years ago, maybe a little more. Um, that uh, Jewish circumcision more closely resembled contemporary Muslim circumcision. And, and that is that they pull a little forward um, and they cut what's overhanging the glands, but there's quite a bit of foreskin that remained. Now, of course, the ridge band gets ablated no matter what. Um, and, you know, a lot of the problems that we discussed still exist. Um, but yeah, it was like that until the Hellenic period when the rabbis started noticing that in order to participate in Hellenic culture, Jewish men were uh, restoring their foreskins. And so they, um, they instituted a more radical uh, form of the procedure. Uh, Priya was added, which is, you know, the sort of peeling back and tearing away of the mucosa. And they, they made it, uh, the laws much more strict about what's considered a valid circumcision. Any remnant of anything, any kind of foreskin was considered to invalidate the circumcision. But, you know, you know, so what? <laughs> I mean, the, the ridge band was gone. You're still, you know, inflicting trauma and pain. And, um, I, you know, at the time when this was being done, of course, um, we didn't have antiseptic um, techniques. So I'm sure the, the infection, sepsis, and death rates were much higher back in those days. Um, not that the ones that exist today are acceptable in any way, but, you know. I, I think that people, I, I've heard that, uh, fact or that data point used in a way of trying to a misguided attempt to try to argue with religious people that oh well this wasn't really the word of God what God really wanted was you know for you to just do this little bit and I kind of feel like that's that's misguided both rhetorically because um, religious people don't respond to those sorts of arguments and um, it's just not I, I mean I don't think it, it was much better than it is today well my kind of thought on it was get step the procedure down let's get the you know back to traditional so that it's not as harmful and invasive to the infant as tearing you know all the skin and in the glands and and then maybe it would lead to it going all together that was my thinking yeah so what you're saying is the the classical compromise position and um you know this was attempted around female genital cutting practices in the late 90s Right. There was a big issue in the Seattle, Seattle area. There was a big uh, Somali immigrant population, I believe. And, um, you know, it's normative there to to cut the genitals of their girls. And the medical profession actually stepped up and sort of suggested a, a compromise solution in which you do just a little pinprick of the hood of the clitoris under antiseptic conditions with anesthetic, et cetera, et cetera. And that was rejected by our society as being not uh, an acceptable solution. Um, of course, I'd prefer if I had to choose between someone making a pinprick on a foreskin and, and completely ablating it, you know, obviously I'd prefer the pinprick, but I don't think that's the choice. I think it's a false choice. I think leave it up to the individual. What's the harm? Actually, in San Francisco last year, I proposed exactly that. And, and there's lots of good reasons for it. You can, um, you could, you could, it's a billable procedure. You wouldn't need anesthesia because it'd be so quick. It would please the father who wants to show how tough his son is. 
it would please the mother who would want to protect her baby. I mean, you can make a very, very good argument for an interim solution to the American felt need for some sort of cultural ritual for their newborn boys. Yeah, but, but you're right, it's crap. I mean, all of these, this also reminds me of the, you know, the religious exemption argument that, that was made um, around the San Francisco initiative, um, which I'm opposed to. I'm opposed to having a religious exemption for this because that, getting back to what, what I was talking about in the introduction, um, that suggests that somehow, you know, Jewish and Muslim boys are A, you know, in a different category and B, not deserving of the same protections as everyone else. And to me, that undermines the entire ethical case here, right? If we're arguing that this is a human rights violation, then the notion that certain humans don't fall under the auspices of being human for the purposes of this ritual kind of dismantle the argument in my mind. The idea is not to legitimize it by medicalizing it. If it's not ethically right, no amount of cutting or any minimal amount of cutting is right either. In fact, Ellie, did you know that the American Academy of Pediatrics tried to promote uh, the idea of doing a pin prick, and this was just recently, yeah. and there was such an outcry that they, they withdrew that. Yeah, I think Intact America made their bones uh, yes. pleading that case, yeah. I know this has been mentioned at other of your podcasts, but I think most Americans think of the Jewish circumcision tradition as gigantic, and their tradition as you know something about the same size. What they don't realize is that most that, that the traditional bris, whether Reform or Orthodox, is actually rather rare. I mean, first of all, Jews make up only two percent of the U.S. Those who are Orthodox make up a tiny percentage of that. Those who want to front the money for a bris make up a smaller percentage of that. And by the time you work down all the numbers, you're getting to one in a thousand. So if you're thinking of being an intactivist, uh, I mean, don't bother. You can bother with the ethics of protecting that one boy, but the real numbers, the bulk, is in plain old American secular circumcisions, which Jews indulge in too. Right. No, that's absolutely true. But again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resist a little bit the, the vector of that argument, and I'm going to come back to blurring the line here because there is a Jewish involvement in American circumcision. I brought it up in my film. Um, I actually thought I'd be criticized a lot more for this, but I, I haven't been. Um, I brought it up in my film. Uh, it's important. Something I didn't mention in my film is that the two most common um, clamp implements used in American circumcision, the Gomko and the Mogan, were both designed by Jewish doctors. Um, and so there's a, there's a Jewish-American nexus here that's going on. Of course... You know, the wonderful counterpoint to that is how many intactivists in this country are Jews. And um, we are disproportionately represented in the intactivist movement. And I think that that's, uh, that makes me, you know, that makes me proud to be a Jew, right? That, that Jews are willing to sort of stick their necks out a little bit and talk about something. And again, it, it must be emphasize this is this is a central Jewish ritual in terms of its cultural salience and significance in the Jewish tradition both uh, religiously and culturally it's a really important ritual um, so the fact that so many uh, Jews are willing to speak out about it I think is also an important point I was I was just curious about the absence of your mother can you speak to that sure um, my mother refused to participate in the film. 
She is, uh, she was, and remains a religious fundamentalist along the lines of the definition that I gave earlier. Uh, and she's quite ashamed of um, my work on this subject. Um, I, I did want to talk to her about it. I thought it. I thought her perspective was important. I slowed down the footage of the women walking away from the, their children's brisses because I think that that's a really important component of the psychological costs, um, some, what someone called patriarchy, right? That, um, that at, at, at such uh, an important um, time in the development of the mother-infant bond, the mother is basically being told to hand her child over to the, you know, the, the, to society to, to inflict violence on. So I wanted to talk to my mom about it. Um, the only, she's only ever said a few words to me about circumcision. Um, and they were, do you think it's easy for Jewish mothers? Um, and I was at, uh, that's all she gave me. And it was definitely not on camera or you would have seen it. <laughs> Um, so yeah, um, some people, uh, are fundamentalists and I am close to a lot of them. I was curious about, um, on the one footage where the woman was going into the back room yeah. crying with her infant right after, there was a woman dressed in white in there. Is, is there some kind of aftercare or something that was going to happen? Oh yeah. I mean, that was just, uh, I, that was my aunt, first of all. Um, and, um, that whole scene that whole sequence of the traditional bris, it's, it was just complete serendipity. Before I was a filmmaker, I, I think I was still in medical school during that, uh, they gave me their video camera and they said, here, shoot the bris. Um, so I happened to be the person who shot that footage before I became a filmmaker, before this film was even a twinkle in my eye. Um, she, she just has um, care, help. Um, whenever she has kids, uh, so that the person was a nurse. I'm not sure if she was a registered nurse or just uh, sort of midwife or what. But yeah, that was just someone helping her with the baby. I have a question for you. Sure. Uh, in one of the uh, interviews that I read, I believe you were in Boulder uh, prior to here, you talked about your own epiphany, and I thought it was very um, interesting and rather morbid. It would be nice if you would uh, share that with us. Okay, sure. Um... So, you know, doing this tour and making the film and, being, and talking about it, really, I had to go back and think about when was the first time I really thought about circumcision and Brit Milah critically. And it was when I was about 17 years old. I think that's right. Um, and I was given the unusual honor of being a sandek at my first cousin's bris. The sandek is the person who holds the baby while he's being circumcised. It's a huge honor. It was very unusual that I got it, um, but it was a small family affair in Israel, and uh, I was given the honor of holding the baby. Um, so I was there holding the baby, and I'd never been in that kind of, I'd been to Briss's before, but never in that kind of proximity to the proceedings. And um, the Mohel makes the blessing, and he, he cuts my cousin's penis, and my cousin's screaming, um, and then he bends down and puts his mouth on the open wound and sucks. And he comes back up and there's a little bit of blood, like a dribble of blood on his beard. Um, and it was really that experience that got me thinking critically about this. I'd been thinking critically about a bunch of different uh, Jewish issues. The role of women was especially pressing to me at the time, but I had never thought about circumcision critically until that point. And, and 
you know, it sort of gets in and it, it starts doing its work, right? <laughs> you know, the, the inciting incident, as a filmmaker might say, um, was there, but then it, it sort of goes under and it starts doing its work. And, you know, I was in medical school before I knew it. And um, I started looking, when we got to that part of the body, I started looking into some of the health claims and I was extremely unimpressed. I had the had the whiff of bad science about them, to quote uh, what John was saying earlier. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, I dropped out of med school and I went into art school and I just thought it was a really interesting subject um, that not a lot of work has been done on. Um, that was a big surprise to me, too. Um, there are, to my knowledge, only three feature-length documentaries currently on male circumcision. There's Whose Body, Whose Rights, there's my film, Cut, and there's a film by an Israeli filmmaker named Daniel Elon that came out in 2009 called Partly Private. I don't think there are any other feature-length treatments to date. Brendan's working on one, and I can't wait to see it. But, um, but that's crazy that there's only three feature-length documentaries in the history of cinema on male circumcision. I mean, it's a huge subject. I didn't touch on... You know, I, I was I scratched the surface in my film, um, and one of the, the the great pleasures of doing this tour has been the podcast, um, which you are all now part of. Thank you very much. Um, but I've been able to take the time to really, you know, have long discussions with uh, remarkable people all over the country about circumcision and go into some of the areas that I didn't get to in my film. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think things are changing. Um, and I've seen that, and, and I wanted to mention the whole network. Um, they're my sponsors for this tour. Um, they're a remarkable, remarkable group of people. It's a grassroots organization. The whole thing was done through Facebook. Um, in the space of a, a few months, uh, they had the idea, uh, they ran it by me, which was nice of them, um, and then uh, they raised the money in the space of a couple of months, which was, again, this is all very low budget, but that's sort of, if you couldn't tell, that's kind of my mode of operating. Um, low budget. But my point is that with a few thousand dollars, these people brought my film to hundreds of people, including doctors and nurses and expectant parents all over the country over the course of two months. Um, you know, I mean, that's an amazing accomplishment. That's sort of bang for your buck. I'm really happy to be a part of it, but uh, I, I just want to, you know, going forward when you're thinking, uh, you know, the, pre the last presentation was about activism, and I'm not really a, an activist. Um, I'm inspired by activists, and uh, I think activists are, you know, our most valuable people. Uh, I'm not really an activist, and I don't typically give advice, but I'm an independent filmmaker, which means that I know how far you can stretch a dollar. Um, and... Uh, I just want to say that um, the whole network just accomplished something huge. 30 cities in two months um, is pretty amazing. You deserve, you deserve every acclaim for what you just did. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com. 